This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett. A special welcome once again to new affiliate WABQ 1350 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque's Progressive Talk. All right, uh, this is... If you've just uh, tuned in for the first time, welcome. It's a radio program uh, dedicated to the proposition that the world, in large measure, is being pulled over our eyes. And uh, thanks to Morpheus for that. One of my uh, favorite American authors uh, was uh, a journalist as well. His name was Upton Sinclair. And he wrote about 100 books uh, beginning, well, over a century ago. He wrote a book called The Brass Check, which was a muckraking expose of the world of journalism, and uh, in it he publicized the issue of yellow journalism and what he called the limitations of a free press. And much of what he wrote in that book holds true today. And I, I think if Sinclair were alive today, he'd look around and say, not much has changed in the last century. Writing about, a, uh, about the, the Ponzi scheme that is the, the current financial order, he said, Wall Street had been doing business with pieces of paper, and now someone asked for a dollar, and it was discovered that the dollar had been mislaid. Sound familiar? I think so. He also said things like, fascism is capitalism plus murder. Something else he said that has always resonated with me uh, particularly as I sit in this chair each week talking about things that challenge conventional wisdom, said Sinclair, it's hard to make a man understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Wink, wink. That is so true. And challenging conventional wisdom, upsetting apple carts, pick your metaphor, that's what we do here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, take conventional wisdom on the uh, evolution of modern man, for example. The story of human evolution began in Africa, we're told, about six million years ago, and it describes this very long process 
that our ancestors went through to ultimately become modern humans, roughly 150, 200,000 years ago. And this process, we're told, has been uncovered by studying fossils and understanding the underlying theory of evolution. And while new fossils are un un uncovered occasionally and... Uh, Every decade, they reveal new chapters. Scientists agree more or less about this basic story, more or less. But again, of course, this program flies in the face of conventional wisdom. And so tonight, over the next hour, we're going to present to you a very different story of human evolution. Michael Cremo is a member of the History of Science Society, the World Archaeological Congress, the Philosophy of Science Association, the European Association of Archaeologists, and a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bhaktivedanta Institute. After receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient histories of India, known as the Vedas, in this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from the Eastern tradition. His book, Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, which he wrote along with Richard L. Thompson, quickly became a best-selling underground classic with over 200,000 copies sold and translations in 13 languages. And of course, the theme of that book and of much of his life's work, really, is to uncover and to present to the public a very different story of human evolution. And the concept, as startling as it may seem, that modern man has walked this earth not for 150 or 200,000 years ago, but perhaps for millions and millions of years. Michael's new book is entitled My Science, My Religion, Academic Papers, 1994 to 2009, and a great, great privilege to welcome Michael Cremo to The Conspiracy Show. Michael, how are you? I'm fine, Richard. It's good to be with you and all your listeners again. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, congratulations on um, uh, the new book, My Science, My Religion, um, uh, Academic Papers, 1994-2009. We will touch on that, but I'd like to dial back uh, to Forbidden Archaeology. And, and uh, I, I um, sort of did my best to sort of summarize what the book is about, but I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear it in your words. Your, your story of human evolution, I guess the Reader's Digest version, uh, is what? What the evidence shows is that humans like us have been present since the very beginning of the history of life on Earth. There are discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints going back many millions of years, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of years. So this is something quite different than is being presented to students in the educational system today in high schools and universities around the world. It's really quite astonishing. Well, let's, let's run through some, some examples. Uh, I mean, you, have, you and I have talked before on, on other radio programs, uh, but this is going to be new to some of our listeners here tonight. Uh, let's, let's run through some of the more um, famous uh, cases of 
archaeological anom anomalies that, that uh, you talk about in Forbidden Archaeology. And we're talking about artifacts that uh, were found in places they ought not to have been found in. Yes, you're absolutely right about that, Richard. There are many cases like that. One of the really fascinating ones for me is the California gold mine discoveries. You know, in the 19th century, gold was discovered in California, and miners went there to get the gold. And to get it, they were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains in the gold mining region, uh, places like Table Mountain near the town of Sonora in California in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So deep inside the tunnels in the solid rock, the miners were finding human bones and human artifacts. They were finding obsidian spear points, stone mortars and pestles, all kinds of stone tools and weapons, along with human skeletal remains. And these were found in layers of solid rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. So these discoveries were reported to the scientific world by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. His report was published by Harvard University. But you know, we don't read about these things in the textbooks today uh, because of what I call a process of knowledge filtration that goes on in the world of science. If you've got evidence that supports the dominant theories today, it will pass through this knowledge filter very easily. But if you've got evidence that radically contradicts the dominant theories today, it, it gets filtered out, which means you don't read about it in the textbooks or hear scientists talking about it very much. So uh, that's if this just happened one or two times, well, maybe you could ignore it. But what I've shown is that this has happened hundreds and thousands of times. So it's quite a substantial body of evidence that's been swept under the rug, so to speak. Well, one of the questions that you address in your new book, My Science, My Religion, uh, is the question of sort of a school of, of geology, a controversial one that's called cataclysmic geology, uh, which I guess critics might suggest uh, if that theory of cataclysmic geology is valid, it would, I guess, argue against what you're, it, it might explain some of the things that you're finding. Uh, can you explain what, first of all, cataclysmic geology is and why it may or may not uh, sort of, I guess, contradict what you're saying? Well, by cataclysmic geology, we would mean the idea that there have been periodic catastrophes on a large scale in the history of the Earth. And now this is something that even um, many modern scientists have come to accept. For example, they think that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid that struck the Earth about 65 million years ago. So some people might say, well, if there have been these huge 
catastrophes that perhaps they've mixed up the layers of the earth so that you know you have human skeletal remains that are really only a few thousand or a few hundred thousand years old that have gotten shoved down under uh, layers that are millions of years old so that uh, if we're talking about, say, the California gold mine discoveries, we might perhaps be talking about human bones and human artifacts that have just gotten mixed up in very ancient layers of rock because of these huge cataclysms that have taken place. Right. I mean, isn't that, isn't that a, a possible explanation for these, these uh, anomalies, that these are not well, millions if, of years if, old? Well, if it were... If it were true in these particular cases that the layers of rock have been disturbed, I think they would be a valid explanation. But in each particular case, you have to actually look and see, has the regular stratification of the Earth been disturbed or not? And this is something that geologists have understood for a long time. Dr. Whitney, uh, for example, uh, the chief government geologist of California who reported these scientific discoveries to the world was aware of this problem. And he, he looked very carefully at the geological layers in the exact locations where these California gold mine discoveries were made. And he could detect there were no fissures, there were no disturbances of the geological layers in these particular cases. So uh, that would mean the discoveries are valid. All right, I'll jump in here. Michael, I'll uh, jump in here. We'll take a time out when we come back. I'd like to get your take on the uh, 250 million year old human shoe print of Nevada during the Triassic period and uh, some other archaeological anomalies with Michael Cremo, the author of My Science, My Religion, and also Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of Humankind. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. Michael Cremo is with us. Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race. And this book really spawned waves of resistance and wonder amongst the scientific community when it came out. Over 900 pages, 900 pages of well-documented evidence suggesting that modern man did not evolve from ape man, but insisted, uh, but rather instead, uh, has coexisted with apes for millions of years. Michael Cremo lectures to academic, popular, and scientific audiences around the world in a continuing challenge to Darwinian evolution. His new book is My Science, My Religion. And I wanted to ask you, um, Michael, about uh, every so once in a while, every once in a while, somebody discovers uh, these petrified shoe prints in strata, supposedly, you know, 250 million years old. That, that happened in uh, Nevada. And then I believe there was a case in uh, Utah where they sort of upped the ante and they found an old shuman, uh, human shoe print in Utah, uh, about 260 million years old, supposedly. Um, can you add to that list or what can you tell me about the, the shoe prints of, uh, of Nevada and Utah? Well, the shoe print from 
Nevada was discovered early in the 20th century, in the 1920s, by uh, a mining engineer named John T. Reed. And yeah, he was out prospecting, and he looked. He was looking at the rock uh, beneath his feet as he was walking along, and he saw what a, you know a, 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 a not a footprint, but a what appeared to be a shoe print in the solid rock. So he had the specimen analyzed with microscopes. And under microscopic investigation, it came out that the the magnified images showed actually the the threads of the sole where it was sewn. So it was really pretty uh, amazing discovery. Now, what makes it so interesting is that. The shoe print was found in layers of rock that belongs to the Triassic period, which is a geological period that goes uh, back uh, about 248 million years. So that's almost 250 million years ago. And there have been other cases like this of shoe prints being discovered. Uh, There was the one... Uh, from Antelope Springs in Utah that was discovered by a fossil collector named William Meister. And he had been out searching for fossils. He was breaking open pieces of rock. And he broke open one piece of rock. And inside he found uh, the print of a, a shoe not a naked human footprint, but of a, a footprint of, of a shod person. So what made it really interesting is that within the shoe print, there was the crushed fossil of a trilobite, which is a kind of shellfish uh, that is characteristic of the Cambrian period, which is a geological period that goes back over... 500 million years. So my co-author, Richard Thompson, went to Utah and he visited William Meister and he looked at the specimen and took photographs of it and then we did a computer analysis of the shoe prints. We found that uh, they matched exactly uh, modern shoe print, like if you're walking on a beach with a shoe on you, and you know you would leave an impression in the sand, the uh, shoe print that William Meister had was exactly like that. And you could even see that the heel was worn, just like you know, if you've got a, a shoe, you'll notice usually that uh, if you look at, you know, the bottom of your shoe, you'll usually see that the heel is worn in a certain place. So the shoe print that was discovered by William Meister had those exact same characteristics. So... uh, Are you able to tell... Was he or anyone else able to tell based on 
the, the shoe print, how this shoe may have been constructed, what it might have been made of? Uh, there was more evidence for that in the, in the Nevada print, which had uh, the, it was so detailed that you could actually detect under magnification the uh, imprints of the threads by which the sole of the shoe was sewn to the rest of the shoe. In the case of the Nevada, in the case of the Utah print, excuse me, there's not as much detail. I mean, it's obviously some kind of shoe print, but there's not as much of that uh, exact detail that was present in the Nevada print. All right. Uh, Let's talk about some of the artifacts, uh, not necessarily, you know, uh, human remains, but artifacts uh, that have been uncovered. And one of the more famous uh, ones, and you've detailed it in, in Forbidden Archaeology, of course, is the discovery of these these metal spheres. Uh, I believe they were recovered in a mine in uh, somewhere in South Africa. Uh, tell me about the spheres. Uh, at a place called Otosdal in the western Transvaal region of South Africa, there's a mine where miners found deep in the earth, deep, really deep down in the layers of the rock, uh, these round metallic objects. I call them metallic because uh, on analyzing them, when metallurgists analyzed them, they detected they were made of a hematite, which is a naturally occurring type of iron. So that's why uh, I've described them as metallic. And the really interesting feature of these objects, which are sphere-like in shape, they're round, and they're maybe one or two inches in diameter. The, The really interesting feature is the parallel grooves that go around the center of each object. There's a picture of one of them in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, that has three parallel grooves going around the equator of the object. And that's what makes them really interesting. Now, if, if it could be shown that these things could have formed by a purely natural process, well, I'd be prepared to accept that. But at the present moment, I'm not convinced that such is the case, which means I think we have to be open to the possibility that some intelligent human-like being made those grooves. And what's interesting about these objects is they're found in mineral deposits, layers of rock that are over 2 billion, that's not million, but 2 billion with a B, years old. And, I mean, you know, one idea that some people have suggested is, well, maybe these round hematite objects are there, but somehow somebody took them and engraved the grooves on them. Uh, 
you know, when some metallurgists examined them when they were going to be filmed for a television documentary, uh, they concluded that they, they really didn't have any good natural explanation for the grooves. So uh, that's really pretty astonishing. And, and, you know, I went to South Africa, and I met the mining engineer from the mine where these objects are found, and he showed me a solid block of mineral with these round metallic objects solidly embedded in the rock and with, you know, like it, they'd be partially embedded, partially exposed. And you could see the, the grooves kind of going around the exposed surface of these uh, round-like objects uh, going back, the grooves going back into the solid rock. Uh, so, so I've uh, actually seen these objects embedded in a big chunk of solid rock from the mine, and this was shown to me by the chief mining engineer from the mine a few years ago when I went to South Africa. What what so, happens to these uh, artifacts? Do they uh, do they go to a museum uh, where they because they don't fit? the the historiography I guess or the the timeline they're they're, well, they're packed you know, away in a crate somewhere in the back room what happens well Richard in in this particular case the the object that I have in a photograph in my book Forbidden Archaeology was kept in the Natural History Museum in Clerksdorp South Africa and the picture I got of it, and actually some specimens of a similar type of, of sphere, sphere were sent to me by the uh, director of that museum, a man named Rolf Marx. And uh, after my book, Forbidden Archaeology, was published, a television producer from Europe got in touch with me and said, uh, he'd seen the book, he'd seen the picture, and he wanted to go to South Africa to film the object. So I, I put him in touch with Rolf Marx, who was the director of the museum where the object that is shown in the photograph in my book came from. And Rolf Marx said that that object had been stolen from the museum. So sometimes things like that happen. Uh, I don't want to seem too conspiratorial about it, but those are the facts that were reported. The object was stolen from the museum. Now, in other cases, uh, for example, in the case of the California gold mine discoveries, those objects are kept in the Museum of Anthropology of the University of California at Berkeley, but they're not shown to the public. They're kept in a storage building several miles from the museum, and the average person wouldn't even know they're there. It takes somebody like me who has dug into the history of these anomalous discoveries to, to even be aware that they're there. So there are other cases like that as well. 
that I've investigated. I mean, some people would think that this idea that there is strange stuff in the museum storerooms that the people, ordinary people, can't see. That that's just something from Hollywood movies, you know, like Indiana Jones or something like that. But it really is a fact that museums do have stuff in their collections that they aren't showing that is really pretty amazing in terms of its impact on our understanding of the real history of our species on this planet. Perhaps just too dangerous. Uh, let's uh, take a time out. Michael Cremo stays with us. Forbidden Archaeology and his new book, My Science, My Religion, Modern Man, Walking This Earth for Millions, Perhaps Billions of Years. What do you think? Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Uh, I, I remember growing up reading about things like the Baghdad Battery. This was a, uh, a clay vessel, and inside there was a, a copper uh, cylinder, and inside of that was this oxidized iron rod, and, and the people who looked at it concluded it was some, some type of, uh, well, it likely would have been filled with some sort of an acid or an alkaline liquid, and, and it would have produced an electrical charge, a battery, 2,000 years ago. And then uh, I remember reading about the Antikythera me- mechanism, uh, which was found in a, in a shipwreck uh, off the coast of Crete back in 1900, and, and it had these differential gears on it, uh, amazing gears, which, I mean, that kind of complexity wasn't known to exist until the, the 16th century. Uh, and yet again, here was this amazing instrument some 2,000 years old. Um, but now, I mean, if you consider what Michael Cremo is telling us, that modern man has existed on Earth for millions and perhaps billions of years, suddenly the Baghdad battery and the Antikythera mechanism uh, well, hey, what's the big whoop about that? Uh, I want to go back to talking about what happens to these these artifacts. And uh, you say some of them are stored off-site in, in museums. I'm trying to understand what what is the danger? Uh, why aren't, why isn't there uh, a, a, an open dialogue uh, and display of these items? What, what's the threat here? Uh, to the the established order, Michael? Well, you know, there's... uh, I think a lot of factors involved in in this. In one sense, you know, it's just like human nature. You know, for example, if I love somebody and somebody tells me something bad about the person I love, I don't want to believe it. I may become angry at the person who tells me. So... Many scientists today, they're very much in love with their theories. And when they hear something that goes against them, they don't want to believe it. I mean, so that's part of it. And then I think part of it is also power. You know, there are different kinds of power in the world. There's uh, military power. There's economic power. There's political power. There's also intellectual power, which is a very subtle power, but a very real one. And we see that those who have power, uh, generally those who have monopoly power in particular, don't like to give up their positions very easily. So for the past 100 years or so, the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution, including human evolution, have 
had a government enforced monopoly in the education systems around the world. So, you know, it's like if one political party has a monopoly in the political life of a city or a province or a state or a country, you know, it doesn't want to give up its position very easily. Or if a corporation has a monopoly in a particular sector of the economy, it doesn't want to give up its position very easily. So similarly, if there's a group of scientists that has a monopoly in the scientific institutions and the education system, then they don't want to give up their position very easily. Now, oh, I understand. I mean, there's there's tenure. There's there's you know textbooks that would have to be rewritten. But I'm wondering. I mean, is there something about what you're saying? These uh, this evidence that man has modern man has been here for millions of years, perhaps billions, not 150,000 years. Is there something that that says about? the very essence of who we are and what we are uh, that would be dangerous. Let's, um, let's discuss when we come back. Michael Cremo, My Science, My Religion, Academic Papers, 1994 to 2009, and of course, the runaway underground bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Next week on the program, our good friend... Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network uh, will reveal the contents of what I'll call uh, the NORAD UFO papers uh, that Victor was uh, able to obtain, uh, and really the the contents of those papers relating to what Canadian uh, Air Force pilots uh, witnessed uh, on their radar. Uh, with regards to UFOs, has never really been made public before, and he'll do that on this program uh, next week. Victor Vigiani and his NORAD UFO papers. Right now, Michael Cremo stays with us, uh, the author of My Science, My Religion, and uh, also, of course, Forbidden Archaeology. And, uh, you know, Michael, for, for the... I'm trying to understand, for the materialists, for those uh, who subscribe to uh, to Darwin's theory of evolution, I'm trying to figure out what difference it would make to them if we were to roll back the timeline... Uh, from mo- the appearance of modern man, well, from 150, sorry, from 150,000 years to several million years, uh, you know, what difference would it make to the materialist? Well, that that's an excellent point, and I think that's what's really at stake here. Because if humans actually have been here for hundreds of millions of years, as I'm proposing, then that means we need new explanations for where we came from. And the explanations we're getting now are very materialistic. We're being told we're just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. And the alternatives, especially the alternatives that I'm proposing and that others are proposing, tend to involve some non-material principles. The idea that Uh, We're not just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. There's a conscious self that exists apart from matter. I talked about this in a a book I wrote called Human Devolution, where I propose as conscious beings, we haven't evolved up from matter, as most scientists now say. Rather, we've devolved or come down from a level of pure consciousness. Matter doesn't produce consciousness, but Consciousness can become associated with matter and covered by matter, and the real purpose of human life 
is to restore consciousness to its original pure state. So if ideas like that were dominant, this would be very bad for the political, financial, and economic systems that are now ruling the world. Because our sense of identity determines our goals and our values. If you tell people you're just evolved apes, you're just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival, then what will they do? Their goals will become very materialistic. They will think that to produce and consume more and more material things is the main purpose of human life, and they're going to do it by dividing themselves into competing groups and struggling very hard. And it, this whole process generates tremendous amounts of wealth which flow into certain pockets. And there are a lot of forces in the world that just want to see that continue. They, they, they wouldn't like to see people le living more simple and natural lives and putting more of their human energy into developing the resource of consciousness. That would be bad for business. That would be bad for politics. That would be bad for the financial institutions. They would rather have everybody just producing and consuming more and more material things and generating all this wealth that flows into the pockets of those who are controlling and exploiting and controlling the whole system. I, I, I hear you on that one for sure. Now, but, uh, and you're, you're coming at this uh, from, uh, you are a, a member of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. So your worldview is informed by Vedic creationism. So could you, could you explain then how Vedic creationism uh, is informed by, or I should say perhaps the other way around, how your, your, your theory about the origins of, of um, modern man, uh, going back millions of years, how that squares with or informs Vedic creationism. What is Vedic creationism, I guess is what I'm asking. Well... This is, I mean, Veda is a word that means knowledge, and knowledge spreads all over the world, really. So the kind of concepts that I'm talking about, they can be found in most of the ancient wisdom traditions of the world, whether we're talking about uh, Native American traditions or Australian Aboriginal traditions or Judeo-Christian Judeo traditions or Buddhist or whatever. It, it's, these are some common features of the different ancient wisdom traditions, and I've found them expressed in the Vedic tradition of India, so I've kind of focused my efforts on that, but I'm not claiming to have a monopoly on these ideas. I think they can be found pretty widely throughout the world. And the basic message is that there is a non-material essence to things, a non-material essence to living things. There is some higher intelligence that is responsible for the order and complexity that we observe in the universe around us, that everything has a source, and that that source ultimately is conscious. It's not simply material. And I think this has 
implications for the kind of civilization that we could live in if uh, we think we're all beings of pure consciousness, we're all related to each other, we wouldn't be dividing ourselves into competing groups and fighting with each other over control of material resources. We would be thinking, we're all in this together. Let's try to provide the material needs that we have in the most simple, natural, efficient, and fair way possible. And 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 let's put most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness and not over-exploiting the material resources and destroying the environment as we're doing now. We're poisoning the air, poisoning the land, poisoning the water. So I think if we had a civilization that was based on these higher principles, it would be much different than the world we see today. It would be a much more peaceful place where we would be looking at the unity of all living things rather than dividing ourselves into so many competing groups. And it would be a world where there was more environmental harmony because we wouldn't be exploiting the material resources to the extent that we're doing today and causing so many ecological problems. So I think that's what's really at at stake here. What the Vedic texts uh, that we hear so much uh, about the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and so forth. Uh, some of the oldest, perhaps the oldest, uh, written texts um, in existence. The, but they, the, there, are, there are clues in those in those uh, texts about um, ancient civilizations in possession of incredible technology, perhaps even nuclear weapons. We remember, of course. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the, the father of uh, the atomic bomb, quoting from the um, Vedic texts after the uh, the uh, the first atomic bomb was was tested, and he was asked sort of off microphone, or he muttered off microphone when asked, "Is this the first time an, uh, an atom bomb has been exploded?" And he said yes, and then he muttered sort of off microphone uh, in modern times. Uh, what can you? We just have a few minutes here, but what can you tell us about uh, clues in the Vedic texts that that an- the ancients had incredible technology? Well, you mentioned uh, one of the elements of that. They they had their uh, they had command of weapons that were really pretty amazing. But uh, there are also descriptions that they had flying craft including spacecraft, the Sanskrit word for them is vimanas. And, you know, there are elaborate descriptions of these vimanas or spacecraft and aircraft. There are descriptions of uh, vast, beautiful cities that existed millions of years ago. There are accounts of of uh, scientific discoveries. For example, they knew how to calculate time according to the movement of atoms. Of course, in modern times, we've redeveloped that technology. We have atomic clocks. 
So there are uh, descriptions of these things in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India that are really pretty amazing. And it's actually in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India where I first encountered the idea that humans like us have been present for many millions of years on Earth. That's what actually inspired me to do the research for forbidden archaeology to see if there was any archaeological evidence to support that idea. Uh, I, I believe the Vedics uh, were referring to something they called iron thunderbolts. Is this what Oppenheimer believed was uh, an atomic blast in the ancient times? Well, the I think he was referring to something else. There was a weapon called a Brahmastra, and its effects were compared to having millions of suns all together in one place at the same time, uh, which is pretty much what happens when there's a nuclear or thermonuclear explosion. It's sort of like if you were to bring, you know, the, the sun and all its nuclear activity to Earth. That's what it would be like. So the... Uh, so I think he was referring to a weapon called the Brahmastra. There are other weapons that are described as being like thunderbolts, and they appear to be more like energy beam-type weapons. Uh, there's a description of an attack on the city of Dwarka in ancient India by a, a flying machine, a, a huge flying craft that came from outer space that was shooting down some of these thunderbolt types of weapons or energy beam weapons. So there are there are descriptions of such things. And again, the Vedics were writing about uh, these weapons uh, existing in what, what time period? Well, this uh, would go back anywhere from five to 10,000 years ago to millions of years ago. Uh, there are, you know, the histories deal with these vast periods of time, and the descriptions of, say, for example, the uh, spacecraft or aircraft, uh, some of them go back millions of years. The one I was talking about, about the attack on the city of Dwarka, that's from about 5,000 years ago. Unbelievable. Um, Michael, what, just last, last word from you in 30 seconds. What, what is it going to take um, for some of these amazing archaeological anomalies to make their way from you know, the, the, the crates in warehouses into the museums? What's going to have to happen? Well, more of what we're doing right now, putting the information out there and uh, getting uh, some popular demand for these things. And to some extent, uh, it's already happening a little bit. You know, I'm speaking about these issues at scientific conferences. Some of my papers are getting published in peer-reviewed scientific publications. So little by little, uh, some progress is being made, but we've got a long, long way to go. And I think what we need to do is get some changes in the education system to allow alternative ideas to be more openly expressed 
in the public education system. Amen to that. Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, and My Science, My Religion, Academic Papers, 1994 to 2009. Michael Cremo, great pleasure. Thanks for your time tonight. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Richard. Michael Cremo. All right. Uh, the website, richardserrett.com, your portal to the Conspiracy Show, still down, but uh, we are revamping and preparing to relaunch. Excited about that, so look for it in a few weeks. I'll keep you updated. In the meantime, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth. Welcome aboard, friends. A number of people have pointed out to me, uh, it was rather curious that my website, richardserrett.com, was hijacked and went down uh, just before our big 50th anniversary special on J and JFK. And I hadn't really thought of it that way, but who knows? Uh, I, one of the things that we were going to, uh, we had ready to launch on, on the website for the JFK special last week uh, was, uh, uh, well, it started out as an app. Uh, that was developed by our good uh, friend Elson Thal, and it was called uh, The Smoking Gun Moment. And essentially, uh, it, was, um, uh, it was going to be um, on, on, the, uh, on the homepage at richardserrett.com, and it will be at some point once we revamp and relaunch our, uh, our site, and that's coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, but it was a few of the crucial frames from the Zapruder film, which you could play, and, of course, uh, you know, frames 312, 313, 314, the, the mortal headshot. Uh, and then over top of that, the voiceover of who was then an unknown local TV news reporter in, from Texas by the name of Dan Rather, uh, who is commenting on what he saw uh, as a witness to the assassination and, of course, Rather, uh, says quite clearly that he noted Kennedy's head going forward violently, of course, which would corroborate the uh, the gun, the gun, the lone gunman theory that um, the gunman was positioned in the rear and above, of course, the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository building. But it's a rather interesting <laughs> contrast as you hear rather saying that while you're watching the Zapruder film and those frames uh, it, during which Kennedy's head is clearly uh, going violently, violently backwards, uh, which would seem to indicate clearly that he was shot from the front. Uh, anyway, it's called the uh, the smoking gun moment, and it was to be on uh, on the website in time for the fiftieth, but the site got hijacked just before. So, who knows? What do you make of that? All right. Uh, speaking of Nelson Thal, we are going to um, uh, welcome Nelson aboard as part of a new segment coming up just after the bottom of the hour, uh, and he'll be with us every two weeks for a short segment we're calling uh, State Secrets, uh, giving us the news. Uh, that you're not uh, going to get from the mainstream media. Speaking about the news, one of the unfortunate aspects of living in the electronic age, uh, living at the speed of light, is our ever-shortening attention spans. And uh, whether it's a natural uh, calamity or a political assassination, after about two days, we seem to forget whatever has just happened, and then we're on to something new. Uh, so a young uh, uh, black mother is gunned down, unarmed, in Washington, D.C., and we chew on that for a couple of days. 
Uh, and then we're on to something else, the latest Hollywood gossip or some natural calamity uh, in Southeast Asia. And then after 48 hours, we're on to something else. That's what they call in the news business the 48-hour news cycle. And it's, it's easy to blame the major news organizations for this, but as consumers of the news, we're really perhaps equally culpable. But one of the things I like to do on this show is to go back and bring you updates on what I think are some of the most important events. And of those important stories, we seem to have uh, quit talking about, one of the uh, important stories, rather, we've, we've, we've stopped talking about, is the Fukushima nuclear power plant accident that occurred uh, back in March of 2011. Of course, there was a tsunami and an earthquake in Japan, and, and the damage that was caused by the tsunami at that time produced some equipment failures at the plant and without this equipment there was a loss of coolant uh, and the accident followed nuclear meltdowns release of radioactive materials uh, and it's gone down as the largest nuclear disaster since the Chernobyl disaster of 1986 and the second disaster along with Chernobyl to, to measure a level seven on the international nuclear event scale so, to bring you up to date, what's happening now, this month, after repeated delays since the summer uh, of 2011, the Tokyo Electric Power Company has launched a high-risk operation to empty the spent fuel pool, which sits atop Reactor 4 at the, uh, the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And the urgency attached to this particular site uh, is because... There are over 400 tons of nuclear material in the pool, and it could reignite. If this pool, which sits atop this plant, were to collapse, it could trigger a chain reaction and a nuclear blast, and consequent radioactive releases would, of course, heavily contaminate much of the world. So here, to bring us up to date on what's happening at the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant, is Dr. John Apsley. He's a physician, an author. He's specialized for the past 30 years in regenerative medicine. His cutting-edge techniques are designed to reverse chronic degenerative diseases at their source through accelerated tissue repair and cellular regeneration. He holds degrees in medicine, chiropractic, and nutrition. He's a certified acupuncturist. He has written and co-authored six books, including Fukushima, Meltdown, and Modern Radiation, and, of course, the bestseller, The Regeneration Effect. Welcome to the program once again, Dr. John Apsley. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be a good, uh, a good show. Don't have a lot of time, unfortunately, but let's just talk about, again, what is happening uh, this month in this high-risk operation. Some might see it as a Hail, a hail, a hail Mary pass, really. What is the uh, Tokyo uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Electric Company trying to do? Uh, at the at the nuclear plant, what exactly is it they're trying to do? Well, in a nutshell, we've exceeded our ability uh, on a technological basis to accomplish what is trying to be done there. Currently, um, of the four major damaged uh, reactor buildings, it looks like from all evidence that units one, two, and three have a full China syndrome, which is deadly in and of itself. We'll probably have more damage done to the Pacific Ocean from Unit 3 uh, combined with Unit 1 and 2 than is even on anyone's radar right now. But as far as the airborne 
danger, we have to look to Unit 4 because Unit 4 is about 200 feet away from one of the world's largest supplies or storage facilities of radioactive material. It's older stuff, it's cooler, but it still sits only 200 feet away. And I've been uh, on the, um, the web all day and also communicating to an international expert today to get the latest on it. And so I, I'm pleased to be able to bring this uh, as a first, as an exclusive to your audience, Richard. Um, when the tsunami rolled in, unit, no, unit number four building was not active. It wasn't running, but it was in uh, storage mode. And it was storing quite a bit of uh, radioactive fuel. And the damage from the tsunami and the earthquake caused the building to start tilting, plus the ground underneath the building uh, became super saturated with water, and it still remains that way. Groundwater, because they, GE, when they built the power plants back in the uh, 60s, they did not do it properly. So groundwater is running constantly into the site as well. So between the tsunami, the groundwater, and the constant pouring of new fresh water into these pools because they've lost their normal... Uh, replenishment systems, there's just an overabundance of a ground that is like, not like quicksand, but the next worst thing. So this building, not only was it tilting, but it was also cracked. And they immediately recognized the problem. They denied it, but there's photographs of it uh, to clearly show that the building was tilting. And they built a, a, a tandem building on top of it as quickly as they could to try to haul off the radioactive fuel in the pool, because as you stated, um, if any one of these 660-pound uh, 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 assemblies, of which there's over um, uh, 1,500 of them in there... Essentially, they're fuel of, bundles. They're, they're fuel bundles, right? Yeah, there's uh, about 68 fuel rods per bundle. They're called assemblies, and each assembly weighs about 660 pounds. And there are 1,500 and... 51 by my count. Everyone's counting a little bit less than that, but it doesn't matter. It's a huge amount of stored uh, urea, uh, fuel that's um, about 202 of them are fresh, brand new fresh. And it's believed that those 202 may be super enriched with additional radioactive materials like plutonium, although that's not been com confirmed yet because it's kind of on the, um, on the confidential side of things. But it could be. And that means that when they're trying to lift these assemblies out at a tilt, um, they have to do it straight up and down because the cranes can't remove these 15-foot-long half-ton assemblies at an angle. They can only lift them straight up. And they're already damaged. They've already, been, they've already gone through several fires, uh, at least two explosions, and the earthquake it's, itself. So uh, pictures that were taken of the pools have noticed severe damage to uh, most of the assemblies. You can see it quite clearly on my website, and it's also um, for, available for people uh, on the Internet. Well, when the cranes now lift these things up, some of them are probably likely already cracked to some degree, maybe completely. And as they lift them up, if they do break apart, even though they're going to stay underwater the entire time because the pool is that high, um, it's possible that some of these assemblies or parts of them could, could fall back down into the pool and rest on top of the other assemblies, and that would tend to cause a uh, criticality. It, it's, uh, crit to me, it's like, it, it's like playing – remember that game Pick Up Sticks? And you turn – it would instead of playing with, I don't know, 40 or 50 sticks where you have to move, pull a, a stick out 
very carefully without disturbing the other ones. This time, though, we're playing with 1,500 pickup sticks. What are the odds, you know, that they're going to be able to pull out all 1,500 without something going terribly wrong? That is correct. That's a, that's a great analogy. So that way your audience understands what we're talking about. We're also, you can also look at it as like a big pack of cigarettes, and you're lifting one cigarette out, and it falls down on top of the other ones. And when that occurs, the uranium fuel that's in these assemblies gets too close to the others, and a chain reaction starts, or what's called a criticality. That would be very difficult to stop. There isn't really a technology that can stop that from occurring. They would have to scurry really quickly to try to pull it off, because in just a short time period, uh, it would go to this chain reaction. And then there would be a boiling off of the water, and once the water was boiled off, then you would go to explosions and fires again. And there would be an immediate re- release of lots of radiation into the air. So what people are concerned about, including former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, who's going around uh, to anyone that will listen to him, uh, talking along the same lines that your audience is listening to tonight, what we're uh, trying to, uh, to get our hands around is what would happen to the common fuel pool only 200 feet away, which contains uh, just under 7,000 of these assemblies. We're talking about a total of about 11,000 11, uh, assemblies altogether when you look at the entire complex. And here's what some physicists are proposing. Once a criticality occurs, it means that there is a, a chain reaction uh, that produces neutrons, which are very powerful little critters, and they can penetrate through anything. And they collide with other atoms of, your, of uh, nuclear fuel, and they generate more neutrons. So that's why it's a chain reaction. One neutron makes two, and then two makes four, and then four makes eight, and so on and so forth. Let me just jump in here, uh, uh, Dr. Apsley. We'll uh, take a quick time out and come back, and we'll, uh, we'll continue on this rather dire uh, situation uh, with the Fukushima nuclear power plant and the attempt to transfer... Uh, over 1,500 fuel bundles, radioactive fuel bundles, into a new location, a dangerous game of pickup sticks that could uh, cost us all, every one of us here on Earth. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Dr. John Apsley is uh, with us, uh, talking about a very risky operation that's happening this month at the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant uh, in Japan, where they are attempting to to uh, transfer uh, some 1,500 fuel bundles, radioactive fuel bundles, uh, into, I guess, a new cooling uh, uh, area. Uh, now, what genius, first of all, before we talk about this chain reaction you were onto, what genius would, would, would uh, design uh, a, uh, essentially a, a cooling uh, pool on, like, stilts or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it, this, this rickety structure is threatening to collapse, and yet it's holding all of this radioactive material. Yeah, the, the designs of these nuclear power plants, including the ones here in the U.S., are just uh, draconian. They're fraught with all kinds of, um, you know, bad and poorly designed concepts of putting fuel too close to and too high up from where it should be. Um, so where we left off the last time, just so your readers aren't left hanging, is that uh, a chain reaction is when these neutrons start really piling up quickly, and then they can start off other chain reactions, even in fuel pools that are farther away. 
and no one knows if 200 feet away or even 1,000 feet away is safe enough for a chain reaction in Unit 4 to possibly set off uh, the others. But even if it didn't, in, in terms of the neutrons, there would be so, so much radiation that people would have to evacuate, and eventually there would be fires, and those fires would eventually take out the power systems that keep everything cool, and it would spread like that right on down through the entire complex, and that danger, I think, is more uh, more probable if it did go into a full criticality. And uh, then you could have the coolant systems of the common fuel pool and the other containments that they've been able to construct just go into total failure. And then that's when you're talking about a North Hemisphere uh, lethal event. And that's what we're all worried about. It's not just me. It's not just the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, Dr. Jacko, but it's also the top physicists that don't work for the nuclear power industry. Um, these are these are brave people that have uh, suffered greatly uh, because they were experts in the field, and um, uh, no one in the power industry likes them to bring this information forward. You just sorry, um, you, you you mentioned a, a, a northern hemisphere uh, event. What did you call it? A northern hemisphere lethal, a, le- a lethal event. Could you, could you explain what you mean exactly by that. <clears throat> Okay, well, we'd have to do a comparison for the audience to understand. What is not generally known is that the 180 tons of radioactive fuel that burned out of Chernobyl back in 1987, over 20 years, killed about a million people. And it crippled, and I mean totally crippled, at least 8 million. A lot of them were children. And that will continue probably to double again over the next 50 to, to 70 years because radioactivity just doesn't go away. And what we've been discovering is that it's the low levels of exposure once it gets into the body that does the great damage. It's not these huge amounts that people are taught and what's put into the mainstream press. It's not these huge levels of radioactivity that are doing all the damage. It's these really tiny amounts because once it's absorbed into the lungs or you eat it in the food supply, it just continues to burn and burn and burn until there's cancer that results or other diseases, including uh, brain disorders, uh, uh, Alzheimer's d- disease, so on and so forth. So that's why there were 8 million that were crippled over 20 years at uh, Chernobyl over near Russia. Um, Belarus is just a total disaster area, and um, and it will continue to be that way for another 300 years. Um, well, Fukushima, when it went off, there were two explosions at Unit 1 and Unit 3. There was one underground at Unit 2. That's caused the China syndromes in those three. And then there's this present uh, danger at Unit 4. It also had explosions. And we're talking about six times the amount of radioactivity, and probably we're talking about 12 times, 10 to 12 times altogether, if you include all of the different fuel pools that we've been talking about tonight. So Unit 4 could be the trigger that, under the right or wrong circumstances, depending upon how you want to phrase it, could set off a domino effect, a chain reaction that would recruit in all of the stored fuel on this huge site called Fukushima Daiichi. Um, if that were to occur, we would have um, so much radiation that would enter into the a- atmosphere that even though it's diluted, uh, whenever it rains, it would concentrate down on the city. And indeed, we saw about a 50% increase in infant mortality rate in Philadelphia not long after the Chernobyl of the Fukushima event, and that was because they received the heaviest rains in the U.S. at that time when the fallout was going over the U.S. 
We also saw uh, over in Vancouver, uh, Canada, almost the same extent of infant death mortality increase during that same time frame. And we saw about 40% increase in infant death rate down the west coast of the U.S. Um, so it's, number one, where the fallout comes over. Number two, it's where the rainfall is occurring to bring it down. And number three, it's not so much about the total amount. It's about how it enters into the body and then just stays there. These comparisons, Richard, to, oh, this is just an average chest X-ray are completely uh, wrong. Oh, a chest X-ray goes on for a millisecond and then your exposure is done. But when you have a hot particle in your lungs, it continues to burn and burn and burn and burn and burn. And that doesn't stop for 300 years if you were to live that long. So um, uh, we're seeing now, uh, in fact, this week, there'll be another peer-reviewed journal that will publish on the increased rates of thyroid disease here, mostly in the young in the U.S., um, uh, likely due, almost 100% due to the Fukushima. The reason why I say that, Richard, is because if you eliminate all the variables as to why there's been a spike in these thyroid disorders for children here in the U.S. and Canada, um, you can't account for any other reason why there was this spike. There's no other variable except for what happened at uh, Fukushima. Dr. John Apsley is with us, uh, the author of The Regeneration Effect and also Fukushima Meltdown and Modern Radiation. Uh, so if this, uh, this Hail Mary pass fails, I mean, first of all, what is the, <clears throat> what is the likelihood, do you think, <clears throat> that, this, that they will be able to, uh, to, to pull this off, that they will be able to transfer these uh, radioactive fuel bundles from this crumbling uh, cooling pool to a new location? I give it, uh, no one knows, I give it a 50-50 at best. Um, the reason is, is because I've seen the pictures underwater of the damage done to these assemblies. They're no longer sturdy. Um, all of the uh, construction that keeps them in proper distance from other uh, uh, of the fuel rods has basically been whittled away. There's no uh, ability to dampen the chain reactions except for water that's been loaded up with boron, and that's it. There's usually many layers that insulate against the chain reaction from occurring, but because they've all been destroyed, it's just the water that's being pumped in constantly with huge amounts of boron that's put into it. So we're on a thread. And uh, as far as this technology is concerned, it's never been tried before, but they have to do it. They do not have a, have a choice. If there is another 7.0 strike, direct strike, at that, at that whole facility area, and it, they just had one recently, a 7.3, but it wasn't a direct hit. If they have one at the surface close by, that's it. That entire unit of all of those nuclear fuel storage areas and the three China syndromes and Unit 4 and the common fuel pool, they're all gone. And, that, and a lot of that uh, radioactive gas has to enter into the atmosphere. There's no other way it can, it can happen. And, Richard, there's, there, it would depend at that moment where the wind was going. Um, at the time that the Fukushima explosions took place, both at Unit 1 and Unit 3, one was a supersonic. It went five kilometers into the air at Unit 3. Uh, the air was blowing out into the Pacific, and that means it, it hit the West Coast here about six days later. Hawaii got really massively hit. Their dairy milk production was destroyed for a few days because there was so much radioactive material in it. 
um, it would mean that if the wind was blowing inward toward Tokyo, that Japan would almost immediately lose the northern half of Japan. So that's number one. If the wind was going out again to the Pacific, should this occur, then it's going to come our way, and then we're in trouble here. And on my website, I've given three different scenarios that we can help ourselves with. We can plan for this. We just need to keep our ears open, Richard. We need to listen to your show, and we need to watch the current news. And I have the three scenarios listed down, and they go like this. Um, if there is an, no announcement and everything goes fine, then everything is hunky-dory, except we're still getting 30 million metric tons of radioactive debris that's being incinerated by the Japanese government between now and next end of next year. That's being put into the atmosphere, and that's coming our way here. So people ought to learn how to protect themselves, and we can do that with certain things. Let me explain how we do this. Both chemotherapy and radiation therapy have one purpose. They cause the production of hydrogen peroxide at the cancer site, and as they produce enough of it, it kills the cancer cells. Well, uh, just an aside, they got most of that uh, ability by looking at how herbs do it, except herbs... They do cause an excess production of hydrogen peroxide in the tumors, but they don't do it to normal healthy tissue. Um, what is happening with these hot particles is the same thing. They ionize tissues, and when they ionize, they produce hydrogen peroxide, and it melts our tissues. We do have defenses against hydrogen peroxide. It's called antioxidants. And if we know how to turn our enzyme systems on in our bodies, if we fuel those up with dietary supplements, uh, they work a billion times with a bees and boy better than an antioxidant just taken by itself to try to quench this hydrogen peroxide. So again, folks, it's all about hydrogen peroxide, and you can do something about this. So uh, again, we're back to the first scenario where nothing happens, but we still have this 30 million tons of radioactive incineration coming our way. We have to protect ourselves from that. Number two, something happens. They say a criticality has happened or an accident has happened, and they somehow get it under control within 48 hours. There's no announcement that the plant has been evacuated. That will mean that in six days we'll get hit hard here on the, on the West Coast, and then for the next nine days total, once the event occurs, we'll have to watch areas along the North American area, even as far away as Toronto, for where there's rainfall or snowfall, because that will bring down the fallout down hard on the on the people's heads um, or number or uh, and, and there and there's uh, ways to deal with that we would have to evacuate certain areas for a time period but then after a few weeks we could return as long as we continue to upgrade our own antioxidant systems within our own bodies very important folks very very important we understand I do this and it doesn't hurt you you can do this for just for general health purposes there's no reason not to and then number three we get the announcement that there's been an incident at Fukushima, and they have, uh, after 48 hours, they announce that they have been forced to evacuate the plant. That's, for me, the worst-case scenario. That means that they've lost control. They can't stop the criticality fire. It doesn't mean that the common fuel pool, which has the, the, on the whole campus, um, together with the 7,000 assemblies at the common fuel and then the other um, you know, 5,000 that are collective around other areas, doesn't mean those are going to go off right away. What it means is is that they, they can't stop uh, a raging fire, and that sooner or later that should recruit in 
the failure of the power system on the property to keep everything cool down. And then we have from days to weeks before the other systems begin to collapse, and that's when the to some total of radioactivity could go into um, uh, criticality. So criticality comes down to this. It, it superheats. And when it gets to about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, it only takes an hour at that temperature for one of the most toxic radioactive substances be, to become aerosoled, to go totally airborne. And that's the cesium-134 and 137, and that's what causes all the damn leukemias. The iodine is in the air at the same time. It's a gas anyway. It's what's causing all the darn thyroid problems. Um, immunity drops. People die from common colds and influenza. And that's what we've been tracking through the Centers for Disease Control data. Um, and then later, many years later, you get the thyroid cancers, you get the breast cancers, you get the reproductive cancers, and then you have the brain disorders. But it takes about 10 to 20 years to all pan out. But again, folks, we can do something about this. Uh, we just have to keep our, our eyes and our ears sharp. That's all. Now, if, if, we, if we want to uh, get onto this antioxidant diet in a hurry, uh, w w uh, tell us where we can go to get that information. Well, I put up free information on my website. So if you go to drapsley.com, you'll immediately see the, the main tabs at the top. And if you go to Radiation Crisis Antidotes, you'll read about all this. It's all documented. It's all documented from authoritative sources. And then off to the immediate left, I have subtabs. And those subtabs are known protocols that quench the radioactivity in the human body. And there's, there's basically there's three things that we have to do. We have to remove what's there, what's gone in. So we have to remove ourselves from, from additional exposure and then take it out of our body. And thank God we have the experience at Chernobyl to know how to do that because they were able to rescue a lot of the children and people there by using certain edible clays and zeolite and uh, even seaweed um, and algaes that were known to, and even things like applesauce. So even people with no money can do this. Pardon me. And uh, once it's removed from the system, then you can get into the act of, uh, of repairing the damage that's been done. Uh, in other words, neutralizing the ongoing uh, burning that's, that'll, that'll happen because the, the burns still continue with this uh, oxygen, with oxygen peroxide, hydrogen peroxide, excuse me. And then you can get into accelerated repair. And, and Richard, we have regenerative nourishment that are part of the longest-lived cultures on the planet. And there are a few food groups that have them in there. Um, I prefer mushrooms because they are uh, grown medicinally. Uh, they're grown organically, and they're uncontaminated. All right, Dr. Apsley, I've, I've got to I've got to wrap this up, but um, we can get we can get uh, some other the the other food groups and so forth uh, that can assist us in these terrible times on drapsley.com. There's a list there. Oh yes, it is. Yes, drapsley.com. Well, we'll keep watching this, walking on pins and needles for the foreseeable future. I'm afraid, uh, Dr. Apsley, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Richard. Bye now. All right, Dr. John Apsley. All right. When we come back, state secrets with Nelson Thal, and then open lines to the top of the hour. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. 
There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. All right, welcome back. And we came back with that immortal uh, clip from Network and uh, the mad prophet of the airwaves, Howard Beale, uh, my, uh, the patron saint, if you will, of the conspiracy show. And we now have in studio our very own resident, Howard Beale, media scientist, Nelson Thal, with a new installment on the program entitled State Secrets. Nelson, welcome. Yeah, it's great being here, Richard, and having an opportunity. We've got a short while just to throw out some important news events, just the, the highlights. People can do their own research with Google, etc. All right, State Secrets. Here we are. So um, let's start off. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, as we always say. Marshall McLuhan, the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret societies. And John F. Kennedy, who did his famous uh, state, secret society speech before a meeting of the American Newspaper Publishers Association, ANPA, in 1961, of which, by the way, my father happened to be in attendance. I never knew that. Yeah. You are full of surprises. Yes. So um, let's get right into it. I think one of the best news items that we should report on that the owners of the system really don't want us to know about, people to know about, is this, that in 1973, Joseph C. Sharp, an experimental psychologist, performed an experiment which bypassed the mechanism of his own ears. His own ears. All right. You're talking voice-to-skull technology. Yep. The military had patented a mind weapon, uh, U.S. patent number 6587729, quote, apparatus for audibly communicating speech using radio frequency hearing effect. The military has the mind weapons to transmit voice and visions, daydreams and nightmares into the minds of those targeted, Richard. Well, that's rather interesting in light of the Washington Naval Yard shooter who was complaining about hearing voices, receiving orders in his head. Also, that poor uh, a, a black mother uh, who was gunned down, unarmed, right. by the Washington, D.C. She police. She was hearing voices, too. Yes, she was. Yeah. So these voices are being placed in there by uh, – we've got the patent number. Well, the technology exists. We Let, know that Let's now. just say this even more. We can say this, that on March the 4th, 2001, the U.S. Marine Corps announced a new non-lethal weapon called, quote, active denial technology, unquote. It produces enormous pain by boiling the molecules of water in the human skin without damaging the skin itself. And, of course, the military has used these weapons at Gitmo to torture the minds of the enemy 24 hours a day. There was also that mass unexplained uh, uh, surrender by uh, Saddam Hussein's elite units in the Republican Guard 
and it was suggested that that technology was employed uh, during the Gulf War. Uh, our next item is um, an interesting one. Uh, first of all, it really is uh, pointed out. Uh, we should point out, Richard, that our um, state secret news is compiled by an informal association of retired intelligence officers turned whistleblowers. And uh, they send us information from all the different sources, including – we should say this. I know people – carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeons are a big business today, unknown to the public, in the community of intelligence officers. Is that right? Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Peterborough to London, Peterborough to Guelph, all the cross they're able to communicate and uh, Big Brother can't get a, a hand on the message that's in the leg of those pigeons. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. They do an end run around uh, the NSA because it's pretty hard to, to uh, hack a carrier pigeon. It's simple. They have no back doors. Exactly. Now, while North America is distracted by Mayor Ford, what is being hushed up is that the European Union, as we speak, is amassing a huge army under the noses of North Americans. And it's interesting that it, the Germany's very popular – Minister of Defense, Baron Karl Theodor Gutenberg, is now called the Cool Baron in the German press. So this isn't so much the European unions uh, are uh, ramping up their armaments. It's Germany. Germany. Once again, German army, Germany is rearming as we speak. Not talked about much. They disguise it with Iranian uh, Iranian <laughs> nuclear problems. You know, the Iranians, we should, we should come back to another point with what's going on. We'll do it on a state secret news next time. So the Iranians got the bomb from ABB, Swiss heavy machinery company, and Rumsfeld was on the board. Remember, Skolnick ah, pointed that out. But the Germans rearming. Jeez, I've seen yeah. that movie before. I think I know how it ends. Well, Napolitano talked about it, and on August 27th— Napolitano being the former Secretary of Homeland Security. On her retirement, get this, she warned of wars, disasters, and serious cyber attack. And get this, she was quoted saying, be prepared and bring a, quote, large bottle of Advil, unquote. Janet Napolitano told her yet-to-be-named replacement in a farewell address Tuesday morning. So you can see, folks, what is going to happen. They're telling us cyber attacks, disasters, wars. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for one more, Nelson. We have time for one more? State Secrets with Nelson Thal here on The Conspiracy Show. Well, I guess we can't leave without pointing one thing, and that is – Condon's Law says when you don't know the whole truth, your worst fears are bound to be close. And so we use that as a motto and uh, it often comes out to be true when we hear from the whistleblowers. He the author of The Manchurian Candidate. Exactly. Now, one thing we do know, we've been inundated with JFK assassination information. But for some reason, somebody didn't spell out the most obvious state secret and smoking gun and and that is this, that police, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry revealed in 1971 that definitive paraffin tests done on Oswald that day proved negative. So, Rich, 
I don't know who assassinated Kennedy, but I know it wasn't Oswald, and that's what the Dallas police chief said. Funny thing, he didn't say it on November 22nd or 23rd or 24th. He waited till 1971. There you go. There well, you go. For, uh, no, uh, no shots were fired by Oswald according to the paraffin wax test, and yet on that day he was supposedly fired three from the Manlicher Carcano and then another four shots uh, from his snub-nosed 38 into Officer J.D. Tippett. Uh, so that's seven shots fired, and yet the paraffin wax test said he did not fire a gun. Funny thing, that. Nelson Thal, State Secrets. Thank you, my friend. See you in two weeks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, open lines. When we come back, you, me, the telephone, get it said. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Goldhawk on Zoomer Radio. Here's Ed in Hamilton. Ed, you have a question. Uh, I've got five teeth on my on the top yeah and i was wondering uh would it be feasible to have all five teeth pulled out to get a, a denture plate thing is if you can keep any of your teeth i would keep them you can still get a denture you don't have to get a full denture a full denture means you have no teeth and it's just a full plate if you can get a partial denture which means only the missing teeth are filled in and then the remaining teeth you keep in your mouth and you kind of have little wires that grab onto those it actually helps keep the bone level well they that that partial denture would be better anchored because real teeth would be anchoring it right exactly Is, wouldn't so that be important much too? stronger to hold on to if you can keep any body part keep it as long as you can <laughs> fairly good advice well there you go ed maybe you should go and talk to a dentist about it and see what they can do for you okay thank you all right all right bye-bye Goldhawk fights back for you. 11 to 1. Get involved daily on Zoomer Radio. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back, friends. Uh, just about uh, 12, 13, maybe 14 minutes before we dim the lights and say goodbye for another week. So uh, this presents a rare opportunity, uh, and that is to do a little open lines. So if you'd like to talk about, well, just about anything, uh, keeping in mind, of course, the, uh, the format of the program... The uh, I guess the parameters. It's a pretty broad canvas on which we paint here every Sunday night or every uh, every week. Uh, we talk about uh, things conspiratorial, of course, uh, but we also talk about uh, we talk about alternative energy. We talk about alternative archaeology. Just recently, we had a wonderful conversation with Michael Cremo, the author of Forbidden Archaeology. Uh, we also talk metaphysical, supernatural, paranormal. We spend a good to- uh, amount of time uh, also discussing the the UFO ET phenomena, which is just a huge, a huge arena. Uh, so, as I say, we cover a lot of ground. And uh, if you'd like to talk about uh, anything you've heard recently on the program, uh, or perhaps if you have a recommendation for something you'd like to hear on the program, well, now would be just a great time. 
All right. I'm just uh, my uh, my technical producer Tim is uh, in my ear here, uh, informing me that we have Dana on the line. Uh, Dana, welcome to the program. You are Hi, on the air. I'm so well, I can't even begin to describe. Yeah, um, just a, a few things about the TV barrage on the Kennedy uh, specials. For some reason, they didn't uh, have um, Saint John Hunt, the son of E. Howard Hunt, giving his testimony about his father's. Uh, um, deathbed confession. Right. Yes, that was uh, <laughs> that was not uh, that was not part of the uh, of the menu. Certainly, it was just a constant barrage of uh, how Oswald did it, why the magic bullet theory wasn't so magic, uh, and just I guess uh, you know propping up that old uh, warhorse, the Warren Commission. Yeah, I don't know too much about pistols or guns or anything. Um, don't even own one, but. Um, uh, I don't believe a nine millimeter can be fired from a thirty-eight. Now they got Oswald in the theater with a thirty-eight, and Tippett had four nine millimeters in him. Well, my understanding was, and this is going back to Garrison's. I I, I recently reread his Playboy interview. J. D. Tippett had uh, yes four four bullets. Uh, Three of them were from a Winchester, and one was from a Remington. So unless the folks at Winchester were putting their bullets in Remington uh, cases, then I don't know how you explain two different bullets uh, in, 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 uh, in the body from one gun. Also, who in their right mind would fire four shots into somebody and then empty the shell the shells onto yeah. the sidewalk. It's not like a rifle where when you, you know, with the bolt action, when you fire, the, the, you know, the shell comes flying out. It doesn't work that way with a pistol. Yeah, can I recommend a future guest for you? You have a lot of great guests. But, Thank you. Um, yes, please. I, I don't know. Have you had William Pepper on? Francis, William Francis Pepper. Yeah, I know yeah. William. I've, I've, um, I've uh, spent some time with William in New York. He's yeah, the, uh, yeah. uh, William, for those who don't know, William Francis Pepper, New York uh, uh, lawyer who is currently Sirhan Sirhan's attorney. Sirhan yeah. Sirhan just recently uh, was uh, transferred to a prison in San Diego, which was kind of interesting, on the anniversary of JFK. I don't know if there's yeah. a connection. I want to just say something. Um, the percentage of the people that believe the CIA killed John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy is very high. I know that's something that at least, uh, you know, I can give credit to uh, my fellow Americans for at least opening up their mind to that. Well, I, the, I honestly the, believe the CIA killed both of them. I, well, I, 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 th- I think that might be, who knows, that might be an oversimplification to say yeah. the CIA, just like people like to say the military-industrial complex. Uh, I mean, we, can, we give labels uh, to these groups. I think, you know, it was kind of a, 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 a patch a quilt, really. You had certain rogue elements, maybe uh, from the CIA, maybe from uh, def- you know the defense intelligence, uh, probably from some alphabet uh, intelligence agency we've never even heard of, uh, um, foreign elements, perhaps. Uh, but the I, I subscribe to the notion that it was a coup d'état to take over the executive branch. How they got it done? You know who was involved. You know, did they employ some some somebody from uh, the mob? Was it Nicoletti from, in the Daltec building? Was it someone on the southwestern uh, southwestern window shooting out of the the Texas Book Depository building? Was it uh, Roselli? Uh, who knows? Marcello. One of the specials on on TV in America had um, I I found it hard to believe they'd even put that on. They had photographs of the the windshield with um, a shot in the bulkhead. 
the top of, I mean, excuse me, uh, the wind, top of the window frame and then a shot right through the middle of the windshield. But they didn't say if the one in the middle of the windshield came from behind or in front. I mm. have a feeling it might have came from the front. Well, you know, I said uh, going into last week's show, it being the, the 50th anniversary, that we're going to probably close the book uh, on it. And I... Uh, maybe not. Who knows? There's, there's information that's coming out all the time. It may be far more difficult just to walk away from the JFK assassination, uh, more difficult than I, than I thought. Uh, witness, uh, here's an interesting story, and, and Dana, thank you very much for the call. Attorney, Attorney Pepper, um, yes. does, doesn't he have three um, photographs of, I mean, three different, fo- or in a photograph um, of the, um, the pantry there where Bobby was killed, he has... Uh, Posley identified three CIA agents. Uh, I don't know. I've not. I've not heard. Bill hadn't didn't mention that to me. He when we talked in New York, he was um, really talking about his efforts to get Sirhan Sirhan another trial. And of course, uh, William Francis Pepper w- uh, was also uh, the um, the lawyer who handled the civil trial on behalf of the uh, Martin Luther King family, uh, which um, which basically exonerated his client, uh, the, the James Earl Ray. Um, and uh, so that was another monumental, uh, uh, um, you know, that was a watershed moment. Again, I believe there was one member of the, re- of the press who actually uh, reported on that civil trial uh, and sat through all the evidence. They were very okay, interested. I just want to say, you and yeah. Nelson do a fantastic job. I really look forward to listening every Sunday. Ah, I appreciate that so much, Dana, and thank you very much for your call. You're very welcome. Uh, I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, more information coming out regarding uh, JFK, and here we are now past the uh, the anniversary, but uh, this uh, reported today in the uh, Daily Mail in England, will a long-hidden footage of second shooter to be aired this week prove Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone? A Texas real estate developer by the name of Stephen Bowen claims to have footage of JFK's assassination. He says the footage was taken by a Houston news producer on November 22nd. The tape reportedly depicts a second shooter hiding in the bushes along the route of JFK's motorcade. And Bowen is hoping to sell the footage to the highest bidder. So uh, whether or not the footage is genuine... Uh, isn't yet known, but if it is, it would represent a dramatic development in a story, of course, 50 years in the making. And, uh, well, following the 50th anniversary of uh, the death of JFK, Bowen, who is also a principal in small in a small film production company, decided the time was right to sell the footage, which reportedly depicts a second shooter to the highest bidder. Uh, well, uh, I haven't seen that. I don't know if that is aired yet, and I missed it, but... Um, uh, I would certainly be interested in having a, a, a look at that. I uh, didn't have time to uh, to get into a story uh, just recently. A former aide to uh, President Nixon, President Richard Nixon, has come out now and said that Nixon always thought LBJ was responsible in some way for the assassination. Uh, now, which is of course a very little, a, a very curious note. Uh, you know, everyone is asked of a certain age, where were you uh, when JFK was shot? And everybody knows, well, I was sitting in the gymnasium at uh, such and such public school, and uh, I turned to, the, you know, in such remarkable detail. Uh, when Richard Nixon was asked, where were you on November 22nd, 1963? He said, I don't remember. I don't remember. And I think George Bush Sr. was also asked that question. And he said, I don't remember. 
Very curious, don't you think? Uh, now, the, also, the other interesting thing that came to light uh, from this uh, former aide to President Nixon was Nixon immediately recognized Jack Ruby when Ruby shot Oswald during the, uh, the, the infamous prison transfer. He recognized him immediately, and he, I know that guy. And it turns out Johnson, President Johnson, had asked Nixon to hire Ruby as an informant back in the, the late 40s or early 50s, I believe. So there again, another interesting thread in this complicated tapestry that is the JFK assassination, the relationship between Jack Ruby and Johnson and Nixon, it just, uh, it just gets more and more complicated uh, every year, more revelations, more deathbed confessions. Uh, will we ever be able to close the book? And now even as we have passed the, uh, the 50th anniversary, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, we'll just, I guess, keep talking about it whenever new evidence presents itself. It's that important. Uh, even 50 years on, why does it matter, people say? Well, if they, quote, end quote, can murder the president in broad daylight in front of millions of people, what else can they do? Just about anything, I guess. Tim Spreen, thank you for technical production. Uh, back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that wild and woolly ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.